On this episode of the Duke Tip Podcast, we're talking about training giant dogs, navigating perfectionism, and the differences between growth and achievement. Hi, I'm Tracy. She's Katie. And he's Michael. We're all colleagues at Duke Tip, the talent identification program. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging gifted students, inspiring them to take pride in their abilities, and fostering their educational, social, and emotional development. That's Duke Tip, and this is the Duke Tip Podcast. We talk about motivating academically talented students, following through on your passions, and learning to love learning. We'll talk to educators, guidance counselors, admissions officers, scientists, authors, artists, entrepreneurs, journalists, and anyone else who might have something to say to the parents and teachers of academically talented students. And to the students themselves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number four of the Duke Tip Podcast. This time we're talking back to school. The good, the bad, the ugly, the anxiety riddled. Katie, Michael, how are you guys doing? I'm doing good. Like many parents listening to this podcast, I'm rejoicing in the fact that it's back to school and I have my house and bathroom to myself again. <laughs> Michael, how about you? I'm doing really well. It's uh, good to get to be able to join more than just the introduction to this. Yeah. Um, it's, it's been a really busy summer here at the Tipman office, but uh, it's good to be able to kind of get into the send students back to their uh, traditional year schools and um, yeah, wait for them to come back. Michael has had a very busy summer, uh, but he is finally able to join us, which is great. Where I feel like the, the gang's all here. And I'm also very excited to introduce our guest for this episode, Diana Lyle. Diana works right here at Duke Tips main office as the elementary programs coordinator in educational innovation and outreach. Among other things, she heads up TIPS e-investigators program for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. She's also been a classroom teacher and is a gifted education specialist. Diana. Thanks so much for coming down to the first floor, and welcome to the Duke Tip Podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to join you guys. How are you feeling about back to school? Do you still have the heebies at this time of year? Uh, it is a little weird since I'm not in a school now. I still have kind of that anxiety of like, oh, August is coming. It's time to start back. The energy level's got to go up um, and kind of the excitement of school. But um, since I'm not starting back to school and I'm ending a program for the summer, it does have a different feel than what I'm used to. Yeah, absolutely. Do you miss teacher work days? I miss going back and seeing all my friends uh, because I always had my school year friends and then my summer friends. And so to go back and see the friends that you work with is always exciting. But the work days and the meetings, maybe not as much. And at TIP, we have year-round friends. That's, yes. That's the perk. And year-round work days. And year-round work days. Yes, absolutely. Year-round vacation sometimes, too, though. You can't forget that. Uh, so we'll talk to Diana about back-to-school tips in a little bit. But first, oh, you know what I learned? All I learned was we know nothing. And I learned it from watching you. Oh, you know what I learned? This is the segment in which we describe the single most fascinating thing we've each learned recently. Michael and Katie, what have you guys learned lately? Well, what I've learned lately is that uh, an 85-pound puppy is still a puppy. You have a puppy? I have a new Great Pyrenees we adopted. She's not quite one year old. She's 85 pounds. She's going to be 120 pounds. And it's easy to mistake her size for maturity. I'm sure there's an analogy in there somewhere for yep. people who have very smart children. You still have to remember they still may be developmentally appropriate in their emotional and social behaviors. I'm learning that. Is she stubborn? 
does she listen to you? you She's a wonderful dog. She's very, very sweet, but she's capable of taking the entire couch in her jaws and moving it around. So (laughs) we've locked down for the duration. (laughs) I used to work at a vet and we had a a one-year-old St. Bernard. And when he didn't want to come in for his walks, he just simply collapsed on his side and you couldn't move him because he was a hundred pounds. So it was really on his terms. Michael, you've got two dogs, right? Uh, Three now. Three. Mm -hmm. Oh, how are you doing? Uh, well, and what good. have you I, learned about? Well, actually, I want to ask you. I want to ask Michael about his dogs before we continue with the segment. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I actually dropped uh, the, our, the largest of our dogs off at the vet this morning. Uh, he's eighty-five pounds. Uh, he decided he didn't want to go in the back, so uh, Daddy had to pick him up. So I, I would actually counter the whole "can't move the hundred pound dog," but you know, it's not, <laughs> if it's you're not Michael, calling you if I need you, exactly. Michael, if you're you, Michael you know sized. Let's see. Uh, I think something that uh, I learned or became uh, crystallized for me um, over the weekend was that uh, I have now hit that magical age where I am the target for adult contemporary and uh, <laughs> band reunion tours. Um, so I got, I got to head out to a concert on Friday night uh, from a couple bands that um, uh, hit their heyday back towards the middle school, high school phase for me. And they're doing their reunion tour type uh, victory laps and uh, looking around at all the people who probably enjoyed these people back when they were first released on cassette. Go um, ahead, confess who yeah, it was. It's yeah, not exactly. like you went to see Eddie Money on Saturday night. No, no. Uh, the tickets to Paradise were unavailable, unfortunately. Um, no, the uh, Guns N' Roses got back together. They managed to really? uh, settle their differences. And um, they, they've launched the Not In This Lifetime tour. <laughs> Um, so, uh, their opening act was actually live, um, uh, which most people know music by them, but could not name a song other than lightning crashes. Um, but the way I've tried to explain it to people, is like, well, you know, back in like 1994, if you had the radio on, it was either that song by live that most people don't know the name of, which is selling the drama or, uh, the gin blossom song. Wow. Wow. It was a good show. Um, probably the best live performance of anything I've been to. Whoa. Um, Axel, Axel Rose has recovered from That's good. being Axel Rose. Yeah. I'm so, worried about him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Diana, do you want to share what you learned? Yeah, actually I was just uh, looking at a magazine article from, it's called mental floss and they kind of have a magazine for uh, gifted students and uh, have really fascinating articles and stuff. But one thing I learned at this Thinking about going back to schools, there was a group of students in Boca Raton who have formed this group. Um, there was a student, I think he was from Haiti, and he moved here when he was six, and he just felt really isolated when he first came to school. And so when he was in high school, he noticed that in the cafeteria, there's these different sections of the cafeteria where like a lot of people kind of sit by themselves, but then the football team is over here and things like that. And he was expressing to his teacher that this is not the way it should be. And so his teacher kind of challenged him to do something about it. You know, well, what will you do to kind of change it? And so they've now formed a club at this school, and their goal is that no one would eat by themselves. And so there's a group of, uh, I think, around 50 students that kind of, they meet periodically, but then they also, at lunch, kind of look for students who are sitting by themselves and invite them into this group or kind of, you know, are there so that students are less isolated. And I thought that was a really cool idea. And and I think in school, sometimes we have those tendencies to kind of look for things like that. And there's a lot of initiatives that come out of that in a way that I think happens less in a workplace. And so yeah. I thought that was a really cool idea and, and kind of inspiring for 
our back to school. Man, yeah, that, that brings great. a tear to my eye. Any parent that's had a child go through that of starting at a new school and eating alone knows how devastating that can be. Yeah, lunchtime can be so stressful in yeah. middle school. I mean, you know, if between being very careful about not dropping something, because if you do, the entire cafeteria will turn, um, or just not knowing if you're going to have a seat ready for you when you are ready to go sit down. It's very, it's really super stressful. Katie, you're laughing over there. About I was just reliving every moment of my middle school years. That's what this episode's about. <laughs> and it reminds me of a, I can't remember enough detail to really go back on it, but I, I want to say there was a group of middle school age students who actually built an app just uh, to counter this problem. Um, uh, obviously, this brings up the media in schools thing, which we'll get to at some point, I'm sure. Um, but uh, essentially, it, it's a it's a group uh, app where the students can uh, anonymously find out, you know, that they don't have anybody to sit with. And this whole network then connects them with, oh, well, come sit with us. We'll be over at this table and things like that. So, <laughs> Well, what I learned, uh, I've been learning a lot this week, actually, about the solar eclipse uh, for our listeners who are near the path of totality, which is a lot of listeners, I think, and a lot of people in the country. Um, so I learned that the last time the solar eclipse um, of this type passed through the United States was 1918. So we're 99 years, which is partially why it's a big deal. Um, I went on to uh, Reddit. They have an AMA, Ask Me Anything series, and they had like five NASA employees um, and just opened up to the crowd and said, okay, ask us anything. And they, a lot of the questions were about unusual things that you could notice because of the eclipse. And so I learned um, not only do nocturnal and diurnal animals get confused um, because it's the, you know, the sort of the middle of the day and it looks like it's evening, um, but they're also misunderstood sort of like, you know, not quite fully understood uh, behaviors that animals might exhibit. Like they might make sounds that they wouldn't normally make. Uh, a NASA scientist said that he saw llamas uh, where, wherever he was last time he was in it. He saw an eclipse. There were llamas that gathered themselves into a line and then dispersed after the, the totality. Was the line also spelled with two L's? I don't know. It's, I'm, I was just like, what? So they, ha they have stories because they've been able to travel to various locations. I, I think that was an X-Files episode. I am pretty sure it's all that. kind of scary sounding. Um, and I, I asked because I have a dog and I was like, gosh, is my dog going to do anything strange? Are they going to look up? And so I learned that animals will not go blind because they don't look up at the sun generally. Um, and they don't have a newspaper or a phone, so they don't know that it's the eclipse. So the chances of an animal actually harming themselves is pretty low. They have good instincts, better than us probably. Um, but I just thought that was really fascinating. Like a uh, fish that typically don't come out um, until it's nighttime will go to the surface and get confused. Chicken well, Chickens will think that it's nighttime and they'll change their behaviors and then get very confused when it actually becomes night later. And hmm. So very, very cool things to watch out for. And the temperature might drop a little bit. Let's move on to Tell Me More. You look like you want to tell me something. Tell me something true. I have so much to learn from you. Tell Me More. This is the part of the show where we delve into our guest area of expertise. Diana, I think we all know that back to school time can be a mixed bag of emotions uh, for students and also for parents, um, teachers as well. But I wanted to ask you as a former classroom teacher, as an educator, do teachers feel the anxiety? 
Yeah, of course. Um, we've been usually as a teacher, you've already been talking and meeting and you have certain things that you have to do to kind of check off things, whether it's attendance or communicating to the parents um, and with the parents about how the children are going to get home that day. I mean, you're going to be responsible for for students that you don't know necessarily all the details that you need yet. So it's it's there's a lot of, of chance for anxiety, especially even how are the students are going to even treat you or react? Are you going to be able to kind of win them over and have a good day? Are they going to be, you know, you know that some of them are going to be very stressed and will you be able to comfort them? Their parents may be very stressed. Uh, will you be able to comfort them? <laughs> there's a lot to go into um, just starting the first day and there's a great sense of kind of responsibility for, you know, being responsible for these students, but then also will you be able to kind of the social aspects of being a teacher and getting to know them and and caring for them in a proper way is is a lot to um, to a lot to think about. And then there's a lot of excitement too. Like you get to meet who you're going to be with, and you maybe you would have a new outfit or whatever else. But it's finally starting instead of just talking about all the the nuts and bolts. But you can have fun and um, have a good day. So just to give our listeners a little bit of background about um, Diana's experience, also Michael's experience with teaching and education. Diana, can you talk a little bit about your background teaching? Yeah, uh, when I first started teaching, I taught in Arkansas in a very, very rural community for a couple of years, and then I moved to uh, North Carolina, and I've taught here for um, over 10 years now, and both as a classroom teacher, I've taught kindergarten, first, uh, fourth, and fifth, and then I also was the the gifted specialist at the school for kindergarten through fifth grade for several years, Um, and then after that, I did more administration, so I was a curriculum administrator and then a math science specialist. Very cool. And Michael, how about you? Um, Well, I I spent the better part of 15 years in various classrooms, um, anywhere from uh, the beginning of middle school all the way up uh, through undergraduates. Um, So kind of of a wide gamut of ages, um, which are less dissimilar than you might think. Um, And then almost exclusively uh, across the humanities, uh, in in the uh, the language arts, the foreign languages, the histories, the, the, the social studies as they're often lumped. (laughs) Um, uh, And I think one of the things that I I really loved about uh, being the classroom teacher was extending my classroom out into um, the stage and the field and being the the, the sponsor or coach of various, um, what are unfortunately termed as extracurricular instead of co-curricular activities and and using that as kind of the grounds to educate the whole person, not just the, the classroom student. So one thing I was thinking about as well is that that, you know, the social emotional aspect of being a teacher is, is, is a whole ball game and it takes so much energy to do it. And to, and you also have the standard and the expectation for yourself that you want to do it the right way. Um, is there anything that you think our parents would need to know about that part of being a teacher, something that they can sort of keep in mind about the way you might go about the first week? Yeah. I mean, I think that teachers have thought very carefully and have been trained for years. Most of them, um, to know how to help this, the all of these individuals coming together to form a group, first of all, and then to also build connections with each of those as individuals, mm. those too, and then to help each of those individuals build relationships with each other. So there's a lot of things that will go into that. I think um, one of the things that I would caution parents is I think that, you know, there's a lot of anxiety, and so it's easy to want to, like, talk to all your friends or, or try to figure out what's going to happen to kind of, so you'll know maybe more it'll be more predictable who you have and what it'll be like but I think the same way that maybe they wouldn't want us to know certain things about 
what some people think about their child or like have a certain label um, is the same for teachers. Every student re responds differently to different personalities. Each teacher is kind of different place uh, in a different place each year. Um, some of them are more nervous if they have a first year teacher and some are more nervous if they have a, a really tenured teacher. Um, and I think I would just caution to be careful not to, to base any assumptions on hearsay and kind of other people's experience, but to kind of go in fresh and give the teachers kind of a, you know, a fresh start and to try to find out what is expected, um, whether that's at middle school and a new school and you have lots of teachers or um, if that's an individual teacher in an elementary school. But I think um, to get a, kind of give them a fair shot and to ask all of those questions you have to the teacher rather than all of your friends. <laughs> so how much time would you recommend that parents give teachers to settle in and get to know the class before they start approaching them about what they want for their child or what they want to change or start advocating? Well, what do you think is a good period of time just to settle in? You know, I would say that from my time in the classroom, um, looking at it as a partnership from, from the get-go um, rather than any kind of uh, relationship where you're, it, it, it's a push-pull. There's you know, sides. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. you know, if, if, if everyone kind of keeps in mind that the, the, the student's success is their goal and that's going to be different based on the student, like Diana said, um, you know, making sure that the, the, the teacher and the parent get to work in, in partnership as opposed to I think opposition. that's a really good point because I feel like we kind of default to adversarial positions these days mm -hmm. in a way and to go when they are understanding that your partner's in helping the child is a really good idea. I, I was going to mention earlier that uh, the parent-teacher relationship is the first modeling of appropriate professional interaction that a student usually gets to see. <laughs> that sounds good. Which is not a way that people usually think about it, mm. but you know, if they are going to be a professional partnership and their profession is the growth of this student, yeah. then... You know, their interactions help the student learn how how to adult. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it feels very different if a parent comes in and says, like, hey, here, I'm here to support you. I really want to help figure out what's going on and like and it and then starts asking questions and finds out things um, and assumes that we're going to be working together and kind of defaults to me in the position that I have. Um, and then to still work with the parents. Because I think it's just as important for parents to kind of strive to build those good relationships with the teachers, too, um, for the sake of the students, as well as the teachers trying to do that with the, with the parents. And I think, um, yeah, there's lots of reasons that may or may not happen, but to assume the best of the teacher. I always tell the parents at the beginning, like, I won't believe everything your child says about me or about you if you don't believe everything they say about me. Because <laughs> it's often not, especially when you have, like, kindergartners or first or second graders, but even you know, middle schoolers and the high schoolers, it's not that they're being deceptive often. It's just that they only see part of the story. And so when they share that part, it can sound really alarming, either from what was happening at home or what's happening at school. Whereas if you can get that other perspective of like, oh, yeah, but here's what was happening in the rest of the class or here's what happened right before or right after, it often changes everything. And so if you've made negative assumptions about teachers or schools or this teacher or this school or students or whatever, then that can taint, uh, you know, what you, what your conclusions are, whereas it may not be that at all. There may be a clear explanation. And, um, so I think always being able to just kind of ask first rather than assuming, uh, on both parts, the teacher and the, the parent, it can go either way. Did you find that, um, like advances or inclusions of technology helped with some of that? I mean, I know, you know, that people are 
I have a friend who uh, has a child who just started kindergarten, right? Um, and there's an app and there's all these, you know, things that they can use to communicate to the teacher. And I know I've got, um, you know, friends who are working in middle school and they, they say, okay, you know, we try and get out from underneath the pile of email. So we manage it through this way and here's how we share grades. And so, I mean, did you have any of that that helped just sort of promote that feeling of partnership and transparency? Uh, I think that most schools now definitely try to use the technology to help streamline some of that. And so, yes, there's definitely apps where the teacher can text all the students or parents at once. Um, or there's a central location. A lot of them have a, a central place they can log on to see grades and, and all the information they need about the kids or maybe upcoming events. I think that's very helpful. I think that sometimes parents resist that because it's new to them and they don't want to learn a new system and so then they'll still email or call or stop by or or whatever is more familiar for them and that definitely adds to you know makes it a little harder but definitely any of those systems that your school has set up that you can use if you can find out what those are I think that definitely the information will flow more fr freely both ways um, yeah, I think my memory uh, of technology and school communication was like just automated phone calls. Like, is that like that's my in newsletters? Yeah. Like, I think that was it. I mean, websites were around when I was in high school, but nobody really used them. Are you all too young to remember when they would call and leave the menu for the school lunch for that day? Yes, as indeed. if you had a choice. You yeah, could eat no, or not, but they'd let you know. <laughs> I remember printouts. They would have the printouts, and it was just pizza and cubed pepperoni on Fridays. Yeah. Sorry if anybody loves cubed pepperoni. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, no, that is my memory of, I mean, because you were, Michael, did you have technology like that at all while you were teaching? Did you leave before, the, leave the classroom before they had that? No, I did not. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. The, Was it emails? Emails. It, there have been all sorts of uh, products brought online. I mean, I, I'm only out of the classroom four years at this point, so... Um, we weren't quite getting 56k dial-up noises when I left. Um, <laughs> uh, at the same time, and this is something I was also going to mention that you know, depending on the school, depending on the community, and things like that, um, sometimes the technology does uh, provide more of an impediment to, yeah. to communication yeah. um, because of access and equity and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but no, being able to leverage that kind of uh, advantage um, in being able to uh, create a presence. Um, that all your parents can get at, at kind of an equal footing and then be able to still be available for that quality in person, uh, really human relationship. Mm. I think being able to strike that balance is really important. I know there's some college professors that have made a rule that you cannot use email to communicate with them because they hear from so many people and there's the expectation you'll immediately write back, even though you're emailed at one o'clock in the morning. What's a fair amount of time to expect a teacher to get back to you? Uh, most schools have a policy in place, and it's usually 24 or 48 hours. And, you know, it is tricky because sometimes, let's say, the teacher starts school at 7.30 and they finish at 3 with students that whole time. There's days where they're not going to be able to talk to you during that time because the kids come first and the students um, are more important while they're there. And then a lot of times they'll have meetings until 6 p.m. So for them to then answer anything in that, you know, 12 hour really ends up being like 12 hours, it's going to be really hard and they go home and eat dinner or whatever else. So 24 or 48 hours is usually a good rule of thumb um, for, for parents getting back to you. And one other thing that came to mind is I think that with e when you were talking about email, I think the other thing with that is many times people 
will say something in email in a way that they would not say it to a person to their face. And so sometimes it's easier to maybe be a little more terse or like to, to say it without some of the like, oh, hey, how are you? Or um, to let some of maybe your frustrations come out a little more quickly than you would if you saw that person, you know, that person face to face. And I think both parents and teachers, if we can be careful of, of what that's, I mean, that can even happen accidentally too, right? You're just busy and send something that you don't mean to say. Um, but I think that can be really helpful in, if we're careful in those kinds of communications as well, in building those relationships and building that trust. Because we really do have to trust each other to really be able to feel free enough to share with each other and, and talk to each other. If you feel like you're going to be... Um, need to be on the defensive every time you talk to a parent or a teacher either way i think that that makes it really hard for you to have that trust and to really be able to share the important information you need to um, about a student you're going to maybe be more likely to withhold more information you would than if you knew that it was a, a safer place right well i want to like talk a little bit about ourselves and what type of uh, back to school kids we all were um so let's think back to elementary middle school uh did you did you have anxiety? Do you did you were you excited? Uh, I personally liked buying. Well, I didn't buy anything, but having my mother buy new like notebooks and pens that seemed to set me up for success every year. I still feel that way. What about you guys? Well, I I loved the structure of school, and I was a rule follower, and I loved back to school time because to me it was I know the, the faces right now, and I didn't grow no, up I, to be a rule follower, but yeah, back then I happened? was. Um, but I loved just the ability to start over, and still, when the end of August rolls around, to me it's much better than New Year's Eve for making resolutions. The start of a new school year, new notebooks, new pens, new me. You could be somebody new. You had a new class. I still love that time so i guess i just loved back to school actually yeah the um annual shopping trip for the uh five subject college ruled yes. um notebook that was the start of a fresh year um college I, ruled forever that's right uh <laughs> I, I i probably still have too many of those notebooks but that's okay because important things were written down in there obviously um but it i guess uh the, there's a line in uh, you've got mail um, where they're talking about, you know, the seasons changing and things like that. Um, but there's something about this, the smell of, uh, freshly sharpened pencils and scotch tape and things mm. like that. And that there is something I think woven into anyone who enjoyed any part of going back to school that, um, uh, as soon as the various, uh, stores around here trade out grills and things like that for backpacks and notebooks, um, there, there are some people who say, wait, it's mid-July, I don't understand. But there are other people who say, oh, ooh, this is so exciting. It's time to get notebooks. I, don't, I have no current investment in an actual school, but I'm going to buy a notebook anyway. Yeah, that is my fa I still walk down the aisle sometime and just like look for new innovations. The, the highlighters have gotten way better, um, you know, and mechanical pencils. I remember when they first came out and that was a really big deal. And now there's pins and erasable uh, pins were a thing for a while. They didn't really work. And um, I just like buying new outfit. I think I really thought, saw that as like Katie, you're talking about uh, a, a sort of a reboot. You know, I saw the new outfit as like, oh, I've got to have the perfect outfit. This is going to be great. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was yeah, this year. I'll be goth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whatever I'm going to be. Whatever is the thing that I needed to that I needed to be, um, like that was. Gosh, I loved it. I loved it. How about you? Diana? Yeah, I remember in elementary school. I went to school in a small town, and we would 
they would post the list of the teachers and who was in each class. And that was, you know, it was so exciting when they'd finally post it and we'd stop by the school different times to see when it was. And so I remember one year even just, uh, I remember I walked or rode my bike over there to see who was going to be my teacher. And, you know, you, you had teachers that had been there a while, new teachers and whatever. And in second grade, one of the new teachers, her name was Miss Grubbs and she was the teacher to have. And, uh, she was very beautiful and young, you know, and it was exciting. We didn't have a lot of new teachers. And so I rode over and I found out I was in her class and I just felt like I'd kind of won a prize, you know, I'd won, <laughs> won the lottery. Um, and I was so excited. I mean, I didn't even know her, but, um, I was so excited that I got, you know, the teacher and, and, uh, all that went with that. Yeah. And assign seats, like finding out your desk and sort of making your mm -hmm. desk your own. I was, a, I like nesting. And so I think when I was a child, I really enjoyed having my desk with my things in it and um, just being able to, you know, slip notebooks underneath it or lift it up. And I also was really into trapper keepers, which they don't, I don't even know if they have now, but just this idea that all it's I could ever iPad. need. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just like this feeling of like all what I needed for success was secured in this little thing. Um, I think I just had this sort of the cross between like a bug out bag and like a learning gear equipment type vibe. Like I was like, if I ever needed to escape, at least I have my pins, you know, like that. <laughs> Non-erasable. Non yeah, exactly. My non-erasable pins and mechanical pencils with extra lead. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think the the, it's probably not unusual that we all have positive associations given where we work now in our careers, but I, mean, I think we're not the only ones. But I think we've kind of proved that the, the accoutrements and the, and the you know, equipment and stuff and involving your child and getting all that stuff creates a positive attitude yeah. towards school, I yeah. think. It creates a, it feels like an opportunity, right? It feels like, okay, this could be, this could be, this is something new. This is some, somewhere you could succeed. Do you have any advice for parents who have a child that seems reluctant to go back to school, dragging their feet, unexplained outbursts of crying or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of students, um, even if they're excited, are very anxious, right? And um, others maybe are going to new schools or maybe there's been a lot of changes in their family personally. And so they're already working through a lot of emotions, whether it's a separation or they've moved some distance from their friends. Um, some have glasses for the first time and they're wondering how people are going to respond to that or braces or any, any kind of things that maybe changes their image can, can add to that. Um, maybe the last experience they had wasn't positive. The last report card they got wasn't good or maybe school is hard for them, whether it's socially or academically. Or um, So I think that yeah, there's a lot of different ways that you can help students. Um, one, of course, you need to know that um, and, and kind of talk to them, I think, and see where they are. Um, and then you know how each of your children respond to stress. Like, everybody responds differently. Some of them need a little more time alone. Some some of them, um, maybe it does help them to have, like, a nice outfit and to feel better about how they're looking and how they'll be accepting. Some of them... Um, they need to know the details like, okay, this is when school is going to start. This is what's going to happen before that. This is what's going to happen during the day. This is what's going to happen afterwards. And then knowing what to expect helps them calm down. Um, otherwise, or other students may need more time to kind of process and, and walk through some of those or what it'll look like, um, you know, maybe an encouraging note for them. Um, some families may pray together, just lots of different things. Whatever you will help your child kind of be at ease or, um, and maybe you can even just ask them. Sometimes they know, sometimes they don't, but to help them walk through that. And um, it, it won't be just that first day, maybe it's all better. 
Um, sometimes it is because they have all these fears and then they're like, oh, none of that happened and they're okay. Or they just needed to find that one friend and it's okay. Or they were worried about the teacher and how the teacher was going to treat them um, based on just, you know, experiences from the year before. Um, and then some of them take some a long time to kind of get to that place because, you know, we all kind of fa feel um, fear failure and you have such a large audience when you go into a school. And so if that's kind of, if you're thinking, oh, I could disappoint my teacher, I could disappoint all these friends, I could be, you know, there's a lot of chance for, for failure if you're looking at it that way, right? Um, others love an audience and they're excited and they're like, yes, <laughs> I have a lot of, a lot of chances for success. So um, I think most parents know their kids and they can, they need to just be aware and talk to them and, and help give them whatever space or um access to whatever they need. You know, I think a lot of gifted kids um, have a perfectionist streak in them. And that, do you find that that kicks in at the beginning of the year? Do you have any special advice if your child is like that? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different things. I think uh, some students are perfectionists and so they want to make sure, you know, if their socks aren't right that first day, they might break down because they needed that to be that, that's just a cue for the rest of the day to be wrong. Um, and then there's others that don't like structure, right? And so there's others that now will have to get used to this level of structure and organization, and they, you know, now will have to keep up with their papers and pencils and all those things. So there's kind of a couple of different spectrums, I think. Um, I think it's hard with perfectionism. I think it's a constant battle, and we have to constantly talk through why they're feeling that way and if it's rational and what they can do to kind of deal with it. Um, and that it's okay that we make mistakes. And there was a phrase we used early on when I was teaching that if you can't make a mistake, you can't make anything. Because really, if we can't learn from our mistakes or make a mistake, we're really not going to make much progress. And so um, I think, uh, yeah, a lot of it will be talking through and helping them rationalize, hopefully, um, that it's okay to make those mistakes. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that they're a failure or, you know, there's a, a lot of their identity sometimes is wrapped up in that. Um, and so I think it often takes a lot of conversations and time and patience. You can't kind of like just tell them to knock it off because they, they, they can't. It's, it's something they're feeling that they'll have to talk through. Well, I think that one of the things that um, I've gotten to see with uh, seeing the students who do attend some of our programs um, is that the students, when they come to a program like ours, they get a chance to be someone other than just that gifted student. Um, but when they go back to their regular year school, um, they're not always able to carry that new aspect of them over and they have to go back to being the kid who has all the answers. They have to be back, go back to being the kid who can always answer the question when nobody else can. And uh, that can add sometimes to the pressure as well, as long as we're on the topic of gifted students going back and what could be stressful about that. Um, so being able to carry over that whole, I am someone other than just the person who can do all the math problems without thinking about it, it is an important thing for uh, the parents and teachers to work on partnering to keep that going too. So you were, Diana, you were a gifted resource specialist. Did, when you moved into that role, um, did things change for you at the beginning of the year? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I had a lot more groups of students and then I was also responsible for uh, doing the testing and working through the identification process and then explaining the services we pro provided for each student depending on how they qualified to the parents. Um, so that looked a little different and not, we tried to start those services early on um, in the school year and it was, 
you know, in conjunction with what was happening in the classroom. Um, but yeah, it definitely looks different because I didn't have the same kids all day and in the same sense. Uh, and so, and they were in, you know, maybe in their class and then they would leave their classes and then we'd have to kind of form another group. Um, so yeah, that really shifted. And then, yeah, there are a lot of different expectations because as Michael was saying, I think a lot of kids learned that smart means easy and that's not really true. And so when they're in the regular classroom, sometimes um, it's easy for them to just do their work. Maybe they didn't really learn anything. They just completed their work, but then their work is held up in front of the class and said, oh, you guys should do it like this. Isn't this great? And they didn't really, they don't know really what they did. And then I pull all a group of those kids into another room and they're suddenly not the top kid in the class. They're just another kid and they're not sure how to view that. And maybe the work is more challenging and they're not, not sure what to do. So it's kind of, you know, I worked at Humanities Magnet, so we talked about dancing because I used football. <laughs> I used football at first because I love football, but one of my students said that, that that didn't do anything for her. She didn't connect with that. So we did dancing. But, you know, as I say with dancers, like maybe you become a really great dancer and you work really hard and you do become a good dancer um, and you're the best and you get all the lead roles and everybody brags on you. And then you go to another school, whether it's middle school or another dance company or something, and suddenly you're not the best anymore, but you work really hard and you kind of get there with experience and stuff. And so then again, you get the lead roles and like, you know, uh, everybody's bragging on you for the work you do. Um, and so I think it's hard sometimes when you transition to another place where maybe you're working harder than you ever have, but you're not getting the lead role and you're not getting bragged on in the same way and you're working harder than than you ever have. And so I think it's sometimes hard for kids to figure out what that means for their identity because they've thought for so long like, oh, I just do this thing and it's easy and I'm smart. And so they start questioning whether they're really smart and start questioning their identity sometimes if they really hit challenge and they haven't before. So it is really important that your child is challenged at whatever level, um, but you don't want it to be so much so that they kind of shut down. Um, and I think it's hard for parents if their child hasn't hit that place before to figure out like, oh, what do I do? Or what is the teacher doing? <laughs> and that's not always the case. Sometimes they just need to maybe learn how to learn in a way that they haven't before. Which is something that you, if you're, you're working at the point of identification, then you're also working with parents who had never maybe even heard this about their child before, or maybe never heard it in the school context, right? So then you were explaining all of this to parents. Is that sort of, so parents had a, had a, a shift in perhaps their own identity at that point. Like I'm not just a parent, I'm a parent of a gifted kid. What does that mean? Can you talk a little bit about that? Talking to parents? New, yeah, new? I think that, um, that there were both. There were definitely some parents who had never really thought of that. They, their kids were going to school and that they were doing well and they were very pleased with that. And then when you talk to them and that you say, wow, like they're really doing well. They're, um, they're, we're going to provide these services for them. They're above grade level, things like that. And they, they had never known that. So I think that's really important for them to start looking at that. Um, and then there's others that themselves have been really into academics and maybe have gone to some pretty prestigious schools or been leaders in the field, their field worldwide even. And so their identity is very wrapped up in education too. So this, these conversations can be very emotional for the parents as well, depending on how they view education. And so I think, um, yeah, there's a wide spectrum. And so there's not a single conversation and to walk into those is hard sometimes because I don't know kind of what they're bringing to the table. Right. I just know the information about the student and, and have kind of the, where they, how they're performing and where we can um, take them and what to do. And so um, I think there's a lot of different perspectives that that can take for the parents and you have to be, um, 
it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis, just like with the students. So basically teachers are counselors in their own way, as well as trained educators. Yes. <laughs> sort of yes. <laughs> jack yes. of all trades, <laughs> counselors mm -hmm. for adults and children. Uh, would you agree with that, Michael? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what kept occurring to me when Diane was just talking just now is the uh, working to highlight, prioritize, and reward uh, growth rather than achievement. Um, which is a hard thing to do when you're dealing with a gifted population. It's like, congratulations, uh, you are, you have been identified, but then, you know, what, what, where do we go from there? Right. Um, and I think that when Diana was talking about, you know, pulling out into small group and things like that, you know, just being qualified to be in that small pullout group, congratulations. Now, what, what can we do with that? And let, let's talk about what's great about how you're learning, what you're learning, as opposed to what you got done today kind of thing, um, and re rewarding the work rather than rewarding um, just the, the achievement that it came at from. So, Michael, that's a really interesting point about emphasizing growth over achievement, and I'm wondering if you could give the parents an example of that. I think I'll, I'll, I'll take a, a case study from my past. Okay, let's say your child is asked to recreate a Grecian village out of that salt clay you can make. In the process of your child having to do that, how would you emphasize growth over achievement? Well, um, I, I think looking at that as an assignment, um, I, I guess being especially especially with a gifted student, but really with any student, like being able to break it down to more than just what's it going to look like when you're done. Um, I guess, you know, building it with the end in mind is, is definitely how the project was probably designed by the, by the teacher. But, you know, taking that time as the parent to walk through the process, um, you know, what, what are your design plans? What are you thinking to do with this? Um, what are you really hoping to get out of this? And if all your student can say is, I want to build the village and turn it in, that's where you, you kind of have the, the opportunity and the challenge um, to kind of push them on, well, in, in doing this, what, you know, why do you think, why is it even important to, you know, be, rebuild this village? Um, uh, and, you know, a lot of students aren't necessarily going to have innate architecture skills in salt clay. Um, I, I think that most architects don't have innate skill in salt clay. Um, so being able to work through that, uh, what the village looks like at the end is not necessarily the key to this assignment. It's the understanding, um, how the student did it themselves. Um, it's also being able to learn along the way. I mean, the, the levels of interdisciplinary learning that could happen in a project like that are almost countless. Um, you know, learning the, the, the micro history of a, a village of that size. Um, what, what would the people have gone through? What would, the, um, and being able to look at the fact that, you know, don't just do it to get it done, but what can you get out of this that maybe no one else that is in your class would be getting out of this assignment? Yeah. And there's also, you know, uh, talking about pullout groups, the other experience that I, I personally had was being pulled into another class um, that was older students, right? And being the only small child at the back of the classroom who was doing the science or math or whatever. And that's also a very, I mean, that's a hard, that's a hard road to walk, you know, for a younger student to be, you know, not among your uh, developmental peers, um, but then it, you're isolated in a different type of way. And then, so then are you, is it better to feel isolated among your grade peers or feel isolated with people who are older than we, with students who are older than you? I mean, did you have that too, where you had students who are navigating that and didn't have the pullout opportunity or uh, your school had pullout classes? We had some pull, depending on the 
yeah, the grade level. And then we also, you know, work through grade acceleration for some students, either in a single subject or in multiple subjects. And so there's a lot of different resources out there to figure out if that's a good situation, including, you know, whether they have a sibling in the mm. the grade that they'll be, the receiving grade, if it's a transition year, you know, it's easier for years where you're already going to a new building. There's less of that, you know, than like shifting kind of your identity. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of those those things that it, it again it's kind of case by case some kids don't really pay that much attention to their peers anyway and they're just doing their thing right. and they're really focused on the you know learning stuff and whatever else and they don't really they don't really need their peers um and then others that's that's a much bigger deal for them and they're very aware of what other people kind of perceive of them yeah and i think it's really important to say here that while many parents worry about the social aspects of acceleration Mm -hmm. or grade skipping or being in with other peers. Our research has actually shown that it's not nearly as big a problem as people think. That, in fact, it does boil down to the child Mm -hmm. and that the parents are in the best position to Mm -hmm. to find. But we we did not find any systematic or longstanding harm to the child of doing that. Well, in my experience, that class, the older students class, had a praying mantis. So, I mean, it all equaled out in the end because (laughs) (laughs) they had cool animals and we our science class did not have the cool animals so I mean I think it's a win for everyone it's a win if you have like animals in there (laughs) you know what I'd like to do Diane is tactfully talk a little bit about micromanager parents because it's so easy to keep track of your child's progress and their attendance and how well they're doing because of all the communications but you know, if you've got a child who's wired that way to begin with, you might be inadvertently contributing to that problem. Do you have any advice for parents that, you know, want their kids to know that they don't have to have a perfect attendance record this year or they don't have to get absolute straight A's? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, maybe the parents that teachers or others might see as micromanagers might not self-identify as micromanagers. So I'm not sure. That question is a little hard for me to answer in that regard. I I um I think that there are a lot of ways that teachers and and parents can put a lot of pressure on students, especially if you think that they you know they can do really well, and so you're kind of constantly refining and pushing them. Um, so I think we have to be careful and make sure that we're tuned into the students and that we know what level of stress as best we can. Some of them don't express that as much um, where they are, and yeah, I mean I think perfection is always hard, whether it's perfect attendance. We you know, I, there's definitely kids that will come to school sick because they've had this perfect attendance since they were, you know, started kindergarten or at the beginning of the year or whatever. And that's that's not really helpful. Um, and so I think if we also, you know, the same with like straight A's or I don't know that we really use A, like A, B, C, D in most elementary schools anymore. They have different measures, whether it's one, two, three, four, five or different things. So um, I think if you focus more on learning behaviors um, or focus more on some of those aspects of growth or whether that's them being more organized or maybe it's um, them being able to deal with failure more or maybe that some other learning behavior that you know your child is weak in. I think that's hard sometimes as a parent or a teacher. Their weaknesses might be yours and so you may not identify those as easily Mm. Um, or maybe you over-identify them and you try to over-correct. So I think that... um, yeah, you definitely want to be careful not to put too much pressure, especially on kids who are already, some of them are already put a lot of pressure on themselves. Um, and so 
to work through being able to fail, be able to grow. Um, and part of it isn't academics. At the end of the day, I would rather my students be able to treat people nicely and start this group in the cafeteria <laughs> and make a B or whatever would be the equivalent now um, and be able to look to take care of other people, look to find solutions, um, look to be able to learn from their failures rather than that they just got the perfect grade or they maintained a per perfect attendance or they were identified as gifted even. So, well, I was going to ask like more specifically about identifying stress in students. Um, is that something that you, Diana or Michael can speak to in terms of like being in the classroom and being able to pick up, particularly with gifted students, where the pressure has turned a corner? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard. Uh, every student is so different. Some are very quiet. They're not very expressive. And so that's much harder to read. The kid that screams when he gets angry and he's frustrated or <laughs> she, you know, like that's much easier to say like, oh, they're feeling, feeling something yeah. extreme right now. Um, others, they try to hold it in and they may start crying. Others, um, yeah, I think it's hard. You'll have to know your kids and know, you know, kind of what's going on. And some may feel something really intensely and then they can deal with it and just move on quickly. And others, it may have been three days ago that something happened and they're still worried that they, you know, something happened, whether it was an assignment or a social interaction or, or something with a teacher. Um, and so I think as much as we can talk to kids, and I think that's the older kids get and the more physically independent they get, the less we do that. And in some ways, maybe in middle school, we need to be checking in with them and listening and talking and helping them process things even more because there's just so much going on. Um, so, yeah, as much as you can have dinner with kids and just, you know, talk at, the, at, at dinner or whether it maybe they like to go running or whatever it is, if you can find those moments when you're doing other things to kind of get them to talk um, for those, especially who don't just say, hey, mom or dad, I, you know, this is what's happening, I think can be really helpful um, and to teach them how to have those conversations um, as well. And is it, is it fair to say for the parents out there who are also kind of very hard on themselves that just being aware that these dynamics might be on play, that changes the equation. I think that probably allows your parental instincts to kick in somewhat and you're probably helping just by being aware of it. I mean, that definitely helps. I also think that a lot of times there's not a quick fix. You know, if your child is a perfectionist or you're a perfectionist, that's not going to suddenly be fixed because you're aware of it. Or if your child is overly anxious or if they don't care. I mean, there's there's also gifted kids as, you know, regular kids that just, they were not really that interested in completing their work or being organized and all that. So that's a whole other issue. And that's probably not going to just suddenly change one day because you had a long conversation or because they, something happened at school that, you know, you didn't like. <laughs> Um, so I think a lot of these are, yeah, walking with your kids for the long term of how can they work through whatever these tendencies are to become adults. You know, we even have things like that that like, oh, yeah, this was happening when I was a kid. It's still kind of a part of who I am, but I know how to deal with it this way now um, and maybe are still learning. You're like, oh, no, I did that again. I really want to stop doing that, but, it, you know, it keeps coming out. So I think part of it is, you know, not even... I think we try to fix things and resolve things because we want them to be happy and in a good place, right? But that's not really maybe how human nature works, that we just suddenly are able to fix it. Um, but to learn how can they adapt and grow and, and learn to, to deal with some of these tendencies and the strengths of those. You know, there's lots of strengths to whatever weaknesses there are, whether it's... Um, you know, when some people say, oh, they're being stubborn, there's also great, there's a great strengths in that in certain situations, right, as long as it's directed. Um, and so I think that's really important. I know that even with uh, ADHD, there was a 
psychologist, I think he used the illustration, you know, that uh, for students that it's like having a Ferrari with bicycle brakes, right? <laughs> so you got lots of speed and you can do some cool stuff, but you need some strong guardrails <laughs> because you can't stop very fast, you know? <laughs> and so I think that if we can think of things like that and try to, to figure out like, oh, this, this, they're really disorganized or they're really whatever and think of what are the, the strengths of that and the situations that that can be um, a positive then that will help them see that and that will help us direct them in, in ways that they'll shine. So I think that's actually a really good transition. We've been sort of talking sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly about the back to school as an opportunity to, for growth. Right. Um, but then also an opportunity to maybe make some mistakes, um, and how to mitigate that, but also how to recognize that they're inevitable and that they're okay. So I think we should transition to our last segment which is failure is instructive. Failure is growth. Failure is learning. Failure is one option. In this segment, we remember that it's okay to fail. As the philosopher John Dewey wrote, failure is not mere failure. It is instructive. The person who really thinks learns quite as much from his failures as from his successes. Michael, Katie, what have you learned from your failures this month? Well, um, I got very excited. Uh, we, we were gifted a uh, smoker, um, which is something I'm excited to be able to use, having lived in North Carolina for a very long time and not having been able to accurately slow cook pork. Um, so it's a water smoker, um, which is supposed to be one way to cheat when smoking, and you can actually hold the temperature where it needs to stay and everything like that. I thought smoking was a dry heat process. Well, it's not so much the wet heat as the the water absorbs some of the heat so as to keep it low and slow oh, like okay, you're supposed gotcha. to. Uh, the water absorbing the heat will be a key detail later in this story. <laughs> um, so cleanup of uh, uh, cooked animal tissue is obviously uh, something that has to be contended with, especially with three dogs around. You're like, ooh, yummy. Um, so pork turned out great. Very excited. Got both racks off. And then um, you have to dispose of the water in the water pan. Um, so here I am, I have, I have my appropriate hand gear ready, so I'm not going to get burned and I pick it up and all of a sudden I realize I'm holding almost five gallons of grill hot water with nowhere to go. And I'm on my deck. That's a good 30 feet off the ground. Mm. Um, so luckily the, the other adult in the house with, was within earshot and was, was able to come, uh, bail me out. Uh, literally bail me out. We got a bucket and we literally bailed out. Um, so, uh, I think, uh, letting the excitement of how well everything went, get me carried away on the whole, well, I'll just clean this up and then we'll go inside and it'll be great. And, um, I, I think that, uh, biting off more than I could chew. I'll continue the food metaphors here. Um, as far as trying to, uh, clean up from this and having, you know, somewhere near 250 degree water sitting in a <laughs> not structured for carrying device um, <laughs> was a quick way to uh, cool my jets on that. Um, and uh, I didn't do it the next time. And, that, and that's the important that thing. That is so. the important thing. Not can can I just it. add at the end of that hashtag North Carolina problems? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I feel like that is such a, that is such a like North Carolina. I, 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 Southern. I, think, I, I think actual North Carolinians would disown me for having a water smoker instead of a it's pit true. smoker. But, you know, so. Yeah, it's true. Like there would be, a, there's but some I'm, I'm, I'm just entering. So, yeah. <laughs> Katie, how about you? 
Oh, gosh. Uh, so I, I brought a, a friend out for his birthday to a fun park with all kinds of things you can do. And and I uh, didn't realize it, but I think I was bringing my ego along with me. And I, I used to be pretty athletic. So I figured, okay, I'm going to do okay at these competitions. So I, I get beat at basketball. I get beat at skateball. I get beat at putt-putt. I get beat at laser tag by someone that I didn't think of ever as being particularly athletic, but turned out to be actually an athletic beast underneath this exterior. And about partway through, I realized I was having so much fun. I was such a cheerful loser. I didn't know I could be such a cheerful loser. And I learned that attitude is everything. It changes inside you. It changes. We had a great time, but it's an awfully good thing that I was a cheerful loser. (laughs) Diana, how about you? Any failures to share? Yeah, uh, this week I've been uh, working on a lot of interviews for the fall, and so there's a lot of scheduling and besides internal meetings and like you know uh, a lot of emails back and forth. And so I had ten interviews one day, and I had double booked. But the person emailed me ahead of time and said, "Hey, I'm looking forward, you know, it." to talking to you at two o'clock and I checked my schedule and I did not have them at two o'clock, but I did have someone else. So, you know, I felt badly and that had happened the other way around for me earlier that day, just with interviews, sometimes it happens. Um, but, um, so I had emailed, um, the candidate back and was trying to find a spot, but I didn't have much time, but I felt badly because I had made this mistake. So I was trying to put, so I rescheduled them, but it ended up being maybe too tight of a window to, to do that. So then, uh, that interview prior to them, uh, went late. So I had to email them again. And anyway, it worked out. We ended up talking and they were on vacation. So their schedule was pretty flexible and they had let me know that. So that was good. But I just realized that in those moments, like even if it is my mistake and maybe I feel bad, I probably shouldn't try to squeeze it into fix, but make it be make sure there's a little more leeway to make sure that it's an actual uh, an actual fix instead of to having to reschedule even again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, there seems to be like an undercurrent of dogs in this episode, but uh, my failure uh, is that I attempted to train my dog to ring these sleigh bells to let us know when she has to go outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and these sleigh bells. <laughs> All I can think of is sleigh bells ring. Yeah, no, they're very Christmassy <laughs> sounding. So I think I've totally like trained myself um, to not respond to sleigh bells in the holidays. It's going to be very sad. But when Whenever you open the door, you hear this jingle, and um, the the it came with instructions specifically for dogs. It says, "Okay, you know, you've got to ring it and say something familiar every time. Ring the bells, go outside, and make it sound like an awesome thing that they want to do, and then sort of ring the bells near them and and let the dogs see you do it, and and eventually they'll start to just tap their nose or whatever to it, right? So we've been doing this for like three weeks, and she every time, and she's just really not. She's she she thinks that she has to come to the door and watch us ring something for a little while, <laughs> and then she gets to go outside. That's what she's doing. Like. If so I she's, put up with this, you'll open the door. Yeah, yes, she's trained you well. Yeah, so she's like, all I have to do is let the humans do this thing. I don't know why they do this thing, and then I'll, I'll then I get to go outside. So I, we've definitely failed. I think I need to go back to like YouTube or something. I need to figure out a way to, to fix this because right now I'm the only one who's gotten trained uh, to ring the bells. And she, like my husband swears that he held it up to her and she'll just sort of ghost tap it with her nose silently, no sound. Um, and he said that one time earlier this week, she sort of hit it a little bit because he said ring the bells and he let and he didn't touch them. So he said, ring the bells, go outside. And she walked up. So apparently, you know, maybe there's hope, but I think we've, 
we've pretty much failed. I, it, it made it sound like it was going to happen within a week or two. And my dog is very smart. In fact, maybe that's the problem is that she's like, I'm not doing this. You're going to open that door anyway. Um, so that was just, you know, maybe she realizes it's seasonally inappropriate right now. Is just I waiting for it to so. be. I think, she's yeah, like, I think you should be careful teaching the dog to react like that to sleigh bells. What's going to happen at Christmas? <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's not around Christmas. She's going to run to the door all the time. It's not good. And what's worse is that you can tell when my dog tolerates something, she just sort of looks at you, but her eyes are elsewhere. And it's just the equivalent of someone just nodding along to a story that's boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, it's just like, okay, I feel, I feel dumb. Um, so, all right. On that note, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Duke Tip Podcast. Diana, you were great. Thank you for Thank joining you for us. Um, Diana, will you come back? We'd love to have you come back. Sure. I'll come right down. To- I, I might even come back. Michael might come back. That's how you know it's a success. Uh, so, into our listeners out there, if you have an oh, you know what I learned, uh, you'd like to share, or any failure is instructive to send in, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to podcast at tip.duke.edu or leave us a voicemail at 919 668 9127. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, visit tip.duke.edu to learn more about Duke Tips programs and how you can get involved. Bye bye.